was like walking back to the place I'm staying. And then I came across this dude who had fallen on the street. He seemed like some old dude. And uh, there were a bunch of people around him. Uh, but like none of, the, not, none of them could speak English. So for me, like walking along a street in, in London, it was kind of weird that I had to like step up and I, I helped uh, basically convey to the 999 uh, person, you know, what was going on because I was the only one, well, I had the most proficient, like proficient English. So uh, I was basically talking to this 999 uh, correspondent and saying like, yeah, we're at this like location. I think the guy had had some sort of epileptic fit. So he was like lying on his side. It was a bit weird, but like for me, for some reason, I wasn't like stressed by the situation, which I found quite quite interesting. But you know, like the ambulance came and they asked a bunch of questions, and then you kind of see the situation. There was one of his friends was was holding this bottle, and I was like, uh, it's, it's probably something like alcohol related, which is another thing about you know the UK. They've got quite a big binge drinking culture. Well, so there were there were two Asian people. Uh, the one had the phone, and then the guy friend was like spanish and obviously the guy on the floor couldn't couldn't really speak properly he was kind of like shouting but he was also being quite funny about the situation which i think is also quite a british trait uh <laughs> you know he's like oh what do you think what do you think i'm lying on my floor on the floor i i kind of left it left him in the hands of the uh, uh, the helpful ambulance staff so yeah that, that was on my way home uh and it's only it's been less than Less, less than seven days in, I'm already mm -hmm. having <laughs> some exciting experiences. Nice. So today we are going to be chatting about energy. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And I mean, we, we did kind of uh, cover it in one of our previous episodes. I think it was episode five or something like that. So it was more about electric vehicles specifically. Yeah, so that was the issue of transportation, which I'd say is maybe the second biggest mix in terms of uh, pollutants. Specifically car-based transportation. Or I guess we talked a bit about like electric trams and stuff, but you know, air transportation, whole other, whole other ball, ball game. So this is, this is going to be more from the transportation side. It's going to be directly on the energy side, uh, focusing on production of energy. So let's just start with a question. What are the kind of forms of, of energy generation? Uh, what are the most popular ones? I actually have these numbers right in front of me. Uh, let me guess. Well, I know in South Africa, we are very uh, heavily geared towards coal. We do have a portion that is nuclear. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there's solar and wind is becoming more popular. Uh, I think I went for a drive uh, out towards, I think it was Montague, and you can go over those hills and, and there's like all of those wind turbines that's quite good to see but i'd say that that's maybe less than a percent of the mix yeah so globally globally we have what's this 10 percent of whoopsie 10 percent of our well roughly 10 10 percent of our energy supply comes from renewables and so we're talking about hydro we're talking about geothermal solar wind energy and biofuels which is arguably sustainable and then globally we have about four percent of our 
energy supply coming from nuclear power. And the rest of it is from three fossil fuel sources, oil, uh, gas, and coal. And I think that, you know, obviously this changes from country to country. Uh, France is actually quite nuclear dependent, whereas South Africa is predominantly coal dependent because we have pretty good coal reserves. And then if you take a look at, say, Norway, where they've got all that glacial runoff, is there predominantly hydroelectric power. But the issue that we have currently, and this is pretty obvious to everyone who's you know followed anything for the past 20 years, is that the burning of fossil fuels creates climate change through emitting CO2 into the atmosphere, which allows a greenhouse effect to happen where the sun rays get into the atmosphere and can't necessarily escape leading to the atmosphere heating up little by little over the years and causing different weather patterns, which have knock-on effects, et cetera, et cetera. So the other part of it is uh, maybe if we take a step back, why is energy important in society? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's one of those things that it's, it's kind of an indicator because a lot of things that uh, bring about economic prosperity Things like manufacturing, uh, industry, um, you know, those, although in a sense in the third world, it's more prevalent that the industry is what drives the, the sort of modernization of those countries. Those kind of industries do require a certain level of power security. Uh, if you think of trying to convert raw materials into something that's usable, such as like a metal component or, you know, some sort of car or you know going up to things like space shuttles and things like that you do need to have a constant supply of energy and so energy production can be a kind of measure of how much uh, capacity is within the economic uh, framework of the country energy is super important for pretty much every human endeavor right and i think that when because we've been listening to a lot of anti-climate change um, talk over the past, you know, however many years that it's been in the in the public eye, is we've come to demonize fossil fuels. But the actual reason that fossil fuels are bad is actually because of how useful they are, is that they are incredible wells of energy at our disposal that we just need to like pull out of the ground and burn, right? And then we can use that energy however we want. And it's because of this ease of access that makes them kind of dangerous. As an example, a campfire gives off more carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide than, say, burning coal. But we don't all sit in traffic of, you know, a thousand campfires every morning on the way to on the way to work. Right. And so no one thinks of campfires as being bad for the environment. Yeah. And it all comes down to scale, right? Is but that it- we're using so much fossil fuels because of how useful they are. And the fact of the matter is that if fossil fuels didn't give off carbon dioxide, Right, which is causing greenhouse the greenhouse effect is 
they would actually be the perfect fuel source. I mean, not, not perfect in terms of um, efficiency is you're only getting a fraction of the actual energy that's stored inside of there because you're just breaking those hydrocarbon bonds when you burn it. Mm -hmm. But you're getting a hell of a lot of essentially solar energy or historical solar energy uh, yeah. by breaking those hydrocarbon bonds. And it's super useful. <laughs> it's that, it's that like, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in grade five, you, you learn about, you know, energy is never created or destroyed. It's always like converted from one to the other. But mm -hmm. in that, uh, camp campfire example, uh, what you're probably doing there, if you think about, you know, what the trade-offs are, you're trading off, uh, your environmental impact by burning this, this, uh, wood, uh, for the, you know, warmth of the fire which is, you know, some sort of opportunity cost that you're exchanging. Why wouldn't you stop, you know, having campfires? Because it has some sort of benefit that outweighs the downside of burning the fuel. So to, to go specifically back to, to fires, it, actually, historically, there's really good examples of this is that across the what is now the developed world is we used to only we used to use wood as fuel to heat our homes and cities like london in the winter used to be cloyingly just super polluted is you walk down the street over there you know people were just like coughing up their lungs on the sidewalk and this was before covid um because of the just amount of carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide in there as well as all the other particulate matter that comes from smoke right mm -hmm. and right now london does have you know fumes from tra traffic and stuff, but it is nowhere near that that mm. same uh, just yeah. overwhelming air pollution that comes from so many fires that are being burned for mm. warmth. So we've we've definitely made progress over there. Currently, as far as I understand, in London they have big oil powered boilers that happen outside of the city, which then transport hot water in insulated pipes into the city that then run on radiators that keep everyone warm. And that's a good example of us shifting from wood, which isn't super efficient to coal or oil, which is more efficient, <laughs> not, not brilliant, but it's more efficient. And now we're trying to figure out how do we how do we make it more efficient or generate it from a cleaner source? It probably came out of that, uh, you know, innovation around uh, direct current versus alternating current. So that allowed for transportation of energy across distances. So you could, in fact, take one of those coal plants that was in the city and move it to the outskirts or move it even further out. So not having that in your mind. Uh, or not having that pollution. And, and even in London, they went a step further because even with moving those power plants away, the, the traffic pollution was enough that they had to implement like uh, low emission zones and even an ultra low emission zone. Not to mention catalytic converters in, in I think all cars, not necessarily all motor vehicles, but all cars have to yeah. have catalytic converters that convert the carbon monoxide into carbon dioxide. And there's also tax incentives of, of like, uh, you know, if your car is old, older than three years and you have to do like a yearly MOT to make sure that it's not going to impact the environment. There's all these measures, but moving that power away uh, kind of gave you that kind of freedom and less pollution. And obviously there's not as much, you know, awareness about it. And that's probably why the thing of, of global warming, although it's been a, 
around for a long time it kind of creeps up on people and people don't think about it all the time because it's not something that's a constant factor so the question is should we just all generate electricity in our own homes you know i actually uh i think that that would be a really really neat idea and that's one of the ideas of uh solar power is that solar power is inherently decentralized you know we we fill up our everyone fills up their roofs with solar panels and then there's no need to be uh, hooked up to the electrical grid because you're generating your electricity locally uh which means that all that infrastructure that transports energy around doesn't necessarily need to exist and also you have a lot of like energy loss over distance so uh energy that's generated outside of the city at a nuclear or coal power plant it needs to travel you know a couple like a couple hundred k's to get into the city and you know we've got a lot of energy loss over that distance so yes i i would love to see the world sort of decentralize into uh everyone producing power for their own homes you've got the power station right so there's this this uh, element called base load so it's kind of you know a consistent load that you have to have within the network in order to to you know supply the dem- or meet the demand of those homes and mm-hmm. base load is kind of you would say it's it's very stable and then you have you know uh, alternative sources that would uh, supplement that base load so for instance uh, you can use solar to supplement or you know uh, you can have more it's got more of a sort of phasic it's more it's more phasic so if you think of a solar panel you know during the night it's not generating anything so the problem with electricity is unless you store it somehow you have to be generating uh, as efficiently so that you're meeting that demand uh, without an overlap if every house had solar panels there's an argument that would be said that they could be overgenerating electricity and not consuming enough so you would need to store it somewhere and then obviously there's the the implica- implications of having you know power sharing and and complications in the grid you know what is the argument about having solar as a consistent base load well a cool thing to think about is you know some some places in the world uh, such as south africa have geysers and a geyser is good because you can basically take an event which is like having a hot shower in the morning where you need energy and you're taking that energy and you're basically supplying it over a longer period of time to heat that water up whereas in in the UK where they've got lots of energy you get these instant hot water machines where you basically turn on the tap and it's basically boiling the water as it comes out the tap so you can think of that as like in the morning everyone wakes up they're all having a shower they're putting on the kettle uh it's kind of a big event and if you don't have capacity to meet that demand then you're going to have blackouts and all of those kind of things so i i uh what you're describing over there I, it was it was explained to me as the duck's head problem right mm-hmm. is that uh in the morning you've got a spike in power use as everyone gets up they take showers they put some toast in the toaster and then it drops a bit as everyone gets into their cars and they head off to work and then during the day because there's economic activity it kind of rises and it peaks in the middle of the day and then it starts declining over the afternoon until about 5:30 p.m. and then there's this huge spike right it's cuz people get home they kick off their shoes they go and they take another shower they start making dinner right which you know as you know 
electrical stoves take up a huge amount of, of energy. Um, they turn on the television. They do all that stuff in the afternoon. You've got this huge spike in power usage. And then by 7 o'clock, everyone starts winding down. And then by the time 9 o'clock hits, you just see the energy uh, the energy usage drop to to its lowest point and it stays there throughout the night. So it looks a bit like a duck, you know, you got the tail in the morning and then you've got the head in the afternoon. And it is keeping up with those those spikes that is pretty difficult uh, for renewables because as you well know, with uh, solar panels is you, uh, in the morning, it's not producing much energy. Well, at night it wasn't producing any energy. And then it just progressively gets more and more uh, productive throughout the day, peaking around midday or early afternoon. And then it starts declining as the sun starts sinking in the sky, which does, if you took those two graphs and you put them on top of each other, you'd see that like, you know, that morning and that afternoon spike just, just come right off there. So what's convenient about a, a coal power plant or a, any, any form of, um, fossil fuel power plants is that it can be ramped up or down on demand. Right. So it's like, Oh, you know, we're going into the afternoon. We start burning more coal, more energy is produced to satisfy that. We kind of like tone it down at night. We say that it can be ramped up and down, but if you think of like a, a, new, a coal power plant to ramp it up and down, it is something that takes a little bit longer. So the base load is a base load for a reason is because it's very hard to have a very, uh, it's hard to match that duck curve. Like if a coal plant power plant can match that duck curve, then you've basically, you know, you're set for life because you can sell that idea and make millions of it. So there is an argument about wind, like uh, wind could be a bit more consistent if it isn't in a windy area. I mean, Cape, Cape Town at sometimes you feel like, it, you know, it's the windiest city in the world. Um, so you could have a consistency there, but then again, it's also, you know, with climate change and, and the, I think it's called the climate catastrophe now. Um, is that there's going to be, you know, in predictability, you can't predict the weather and even more mm. so when, when all of these climate things are happening. And then the other side is that there's an argument about the effect of solar panels and the environmental impact of uh, production of solar panels and also the disposal of solar panels once they reach, reach end of life. We probably, ha probably haven't got to that stage when we've got like stockpiles of disposed solar panels. That begs the question, and it's probably one that's a bit topical, is that should we just go nuclear and have a nuclear power plant and we just, you know, connect it to our existing grid of electricity and then have, you know, as we do, we don't have to do all of this like smart grid stuff within the city. We don't have to set up solar panels and arguably it's a little bit more simple. So I, I'm glad you brought it up is I think that nuclear energy is probably the most controversial form of energy generation because of how catastrophic it can be, but also because of how green and how efficient of an energy it is. So when uh, I'm going to like go deep down to, to just like energy physics, right? Start is with that, the particle. <laughs> hey, we're starting with the particle, you know, when, when old Einstein, uh, did he uh, like came up with his his equation e equals mc squared we realized that like mass has a has a fuck ton of energy stored in it right it the amount of energy stored in it is equal to mass multiplied by c the speed of light essentially squared which is a lot 
but the only way that you would be able to extract all of that energy from that mass is if it collided with with the same mass of antimatter right and then they cancel each other out the mass itself completely disappears and it gets converted entirely into energy right that would be the perfect the perfect solution um unfortunately we can't make antimatter in any <laughs> any distinct quantities yet that so the next best thing that we can do is is use a, atomic physics to either split or fuse atoms together and release the energy stored in those atomic bonds and that's where you've got um, fusion and fission fusion being uh, two atoms being compressed to well, atoms being compressed together so with so much force that they they fuse into a plasma releasing that energy that's how the sun works but it you know gets that uh, gets that massive um, amount of force from gravity whereas with fission you know we we go and we do some some stuff with fissile material and essentially you know split them causing a chain reaction within a reactor for instance you're actually you have this kind of well in a in a fission reactor you have this this problem where you've got something that's reacting and you've got these fuel rods which are essentially uh controlling that reaction so that it doesn't you know get super critical and any, anyone who's watched the you know chernobyl series or you know anything around that will know that you know once the fuel rods are in like fully in then it's controlling that reaction because at the end of the day what's happening is you know particles are being emitted and they're hitting another particle and that's going to be, be cause a chain reaction and the only way you can kind of prevent that is have these fuel rods that are embedded in the material uh the fissile material and it's it's basically just absorbing and making sure that it's contained now the problem is, you know, if you pull out those fuel fuel rods, then you've got this chance where you're going to have a big explosion. And on the top of mines are things like Chernobyl and more recently Fukushima, uh, where there's been massive environmental damage. But and then arguably it's also to a certain extent within a certain, you know, range. Uh, and I mean, technology has progressed a lot since those, uh, you know, those things were built. And even in our own, in South Africa's sense, I think Kuburg, it was built in the 1950s or something like that. So it's, it's a pretty old power station. Um, and, you know, these were all built, you know, quite a long time ago. On the fusion side, you know, I think there's only, uh, I think there's only one or two projects that are even in the phase where they're starting to actually try and build what's called a tokamak. Uh, I just like the word tokamak. Uh, it's a pretty good word. It's a pretty cool word. But then it, the problem is that there's only been limited studies that have shown that the amount of energy to get that fusion to happen, as you said, to push push them, the particles together, it doesn't outweigh, like, it's very hard to get that difference where you're getting more out than what you put in. Mm. So it's essentially what we're looking for is net gain fusion. Yeah, so the trade-off is that uh, do, we, do we, like, hold out uh, and risk, like, a, a future where we don't have enough energy to provide that growth that we need uh, and wait for fusion? Uh, or do we use what we have and what may be a little bit more, uh, you, like it may be a bit more, you know, reactive, but it's, it's kind of something that we know how to build. Yeah. I, I think that nuclear energy is actually incredible, right? It's, it's fairly expensive. Uh, it's definitely more expensive than solar power, 
but you can also produce a lot more of it with um if like from a certain amount of land it's only expensive to get to point a when you've sw- to get to that point where you've switched on the, the power as it were it's that's that's when the expense kind of because uh, i know south africa does have export uranium or we have a few uranium reserves you can take a remarkably small amount of uranium and power like a whole city for you know many many months or many weeks yeah and across the board it's like nuclear energy it essentially emits zero carbon dioxide right but despite us having three or four uh nuclear catastrophes in the past 70 years is including all the deaths from from fukushima from chernobyl including the uh later deaths from the passive radiation in the background it is still one of the safest forms of energy production per terawatt hour so adjusted for terawatt hours with brown coal we have 32.72 deaths per terawatt hour and that's entirely due to just like respiratory disease or uh the mining process killing people accidents etc cetera, etc cetera. then you've got coal which is you know 25 deaths per te- per terawatt hour oil is sitting at 18 and a half and then we get down to nuclear which has got 0.07 deaths per terawatt hour which is just mm-hmm. above wind with 0.04 deaths per terawatt hour and i assume that wind power only ever kills people by accident uh, as well you know like a giant fin mm-hmm. falls on someone during production but so it's actually an incredibly safe form of of energy unless and i think that this is the big reason to regulate nuclear energy but i will get into some other options afterwards is the problem with nuclear energy as it stands right now is that if you can build a power station you can theoretically build nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and nuclear weapons are absolutely terrifying like i don't i think that we've become a bit desensitized to the concept of nuclear weapons uh from from the media because they're talked about so much and it's like oh you know the president with his briefcase and the red buttons and it's like ooh mm-hmm. you know yeah you can destroy stuff but it's like no no nuclear weapons are literally the only thing that we have created that can effectively wipe us out it's it's hard to to imagine but just kind of picture it you're sitting at your house in cape town and there's just like a blinding flash outside your window and you look up and there's just this expanding ball and it's it'll literally destroy and obviously kill everyone but destroy this entire space with everyone inside of it for kilometers in every direction and then everyone outside of the blast radius is probably going to die from heat as well and if they don't die from heat they're going to die from radiation poisoning if they don't die from radiation poisoning they're going to die from radiation exposure over the next month or so it is absolutely terrifying and i uh i'm sure you can tell from that description that i am very very much against nuclear proliferation um because it, it all it takes is just one rogue uh government right it's why it's why people talk about north korea because North Korea isn't that unique in it being a dictatorship, right? We have 
countries that are like have human rights travesties happening. We talk about North Korea because they potentially have nuclear weapons and that makes it a problem for everyone else in the world. Is that risk worth the environmental impact? Yeah, it's a very good question, but I think that we can get around that. So there, as you mentioned, there are a bunch of new technologies that can be used for building nuclear power plants currently. And have you heard of, uh, have you heard of the thorium reactor? Yeah, I was going to, I was going to bring it up. Yeah. You take, take it away. Tell me about the thorium reactor. So there was a, there was like a critical juncture, uh, in, in the sort of development phase of, uh, the, I think it was the Manhattan project, you know, where they were developing the atomic bomb. There was a lot of nuclear physics going on at the time. And basically there were these two forms of, uh, nuclear power or nu- ways to, you know, harness nuclear energy to to build uh, to to have energy you know output that was more than the input um, the one was the, the the fission that we see today and the other one was a thorium based reactor now the, the good thing about the thorium based reactor is that when it got to a critical uh, sort of um, state you could you could switch it off and it would go back to a sort of statics or back to a low energy state that wasn't an explosion. So you would have, you could turn it on and then you could like switch it off. Uh, with the fission way, uh, the uranium based uh, reactors, you had to you had to do that sort of maintenance of, of the reaction. So if something went wrong, it basically exploded and the energy was uh, exothermic. Um, and the reason why we have today uh, fission and not thorium reactors uh, or u- uranium based and not thorium based is because at the time there was a war going on and they, obviously the United States were like, we've got to get ahead of this. And so they developed uh, the uranium side. So there's an argument out there that if, uh, if at that point they'd chosen thorium, we would have a lot more uh, very safe forms of, um, of energy out there. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, I, I think that thorium is absolutely incredible. So... I'm by no means a nuclear physicist, so I'm going to try my best to not butcher what I'm about <laughs> to say. But inside of our traditional uh, uranium reactors, when when we start the process, it has to be inside of water, right? Because that water actually slows down these particles um, to make sure that we don't have a runaway reaction. And every nuclear, uh, every plant that has melted down in history every big nuclear travesty that has happened has been because the water pumps stopped working, right? Is the water pumps are super important because they, we need them to make sure that that, that that reaction stays under control. Now, what happens with thorium is that firstly, the particles actually move slower. Um, but for every extra particle that is hit, it only gives off roughly one other particle so it never the reaction never grows it always stays uh the same or or decreases so that's why they talk about thorium as being walk away safe is that if you have it running and you leave Mm. and something goes wrong it will probably just stop working yeah it's it's like this the idea of of like uh fail safe so something goes wrong it gets to a safe position Whereas in uranium, it's fail, fail unsafe, where it's like, 
Yeah, the uranium's fail unsafe, right? <laughs> um, but another another potential uh, another potential way to make these plants even safer are by using uh, malting valves. So essentially, what you have is you've got your you've got uh, the chamber where the reaction is happening, and it's probably heating up some or other type of fluid to turn a turbine. And then there's a big old valve that leads into a whole bunch of drainage tanks. And this valve is a special kind of valve that is made out of a material that it melts at a specific temperature. So if the reaction gets out of control and everything gets too hot, that valve melts, melts away and everything just drains into these drainage tanks and everything becomes inert. Then, then the third, the third thing that's actually also really interesting, and this can be implemented in a lot of other plants, and isn't ne necessarily uh, thorium-based, is that uh, using molten salts as a energy storage mechanism. So instead of trying to ramp up and down power based on demand, what it is is that it runs at a baseline and it just heats up these molten salts that act as a battery, and then the energy is just extracted from the molten salt uh, and turned into electrical energy or heat energy mm -hmm. is transferred to warm homes and stuff. The one, the one thing that's li like kind of constant, no matter which, which direction we go, uh, whether it's, you know, thermal uh, or nuclear or power, the one thing that we need now is, uh, you know, that development of knowledge, like, uh, I know there's like superconductors that they're getting to a stage where they can, you know, almost have superconductivity at uh, almost room temperatures or, mm -hmm. you know, not sub-zero temperatures. It's, uh, the problem is like, we don't, do we necessarily have that knowledge around or available? Or is it going to come to a point where we have like one or two countries that are basically, you know, withholding that knowledge? And that knowledge also transpires into the way that people think and it, we can maybe think about you know people who are against nuclear or against uh, some of these other options the thought pattern like they're probably thinking of you know they're thinking of a few examples where something went bad so maybe there's a failing in the way that people think about it statistically or there's not a, a good conversation about those trade-offs and the and uh, i think what i failed to mention about um, thorium reactors is it's very difficult to use them to create fissile material for nuclear weapons, which is, which is really important. <laughs> um, so I, 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 to answer your question, I think that we should be using nuclear power, uh, absolutely, because we are we are at a you know a fork in the roads. Well, we we kind of passed that fork a while back, but we should be doing everything we can to prevent. Yeah rampant climate change from continuing but then also so it's also a scale right so the problem with uh, nuclear and we could kind of get towards the conclusions now so nuclear we, we i agree we both agree that nuclear is good but the thing is a nuclear power plant tends to take a long time to build so in that time we shouldn't have it as a saving grace and we should move towards this uh, you know diverse mix of energies so you will have nuclear being like the base layer when, when fission is available, uh, oh, sorry, fusion, then switch out nuclear for fusion. But at the same time, you're still developing like complex grid technologies, you know, battery technologies. They all kind of need to be happening at the same time, as long as we're moving away from the coal, the fossil fuels and all of those kind of things. I think that thorium reactions 
will be a great way to power the world. And in the meantime, we do need to focus on renewables like solar, like wind, like hydro. Uh, you know, hydro is actually an interesting one because hydro also like damages ecosystems. Yeah. But I, I don't think that renewables are going to solve our problems. Like the world requires more energy than we can provide with solar and wind power. There's a video by Kutzkazatz, the in a nutshell guys, that came out recently called uh, Can You Stop Climate Change? And the thumbnail is just like a big no. Um, and it's actually a really interesting watch, very well animated, uh, that talks about you know, rampant climate change and what a person's personal impacts are and how you can actually make a difference. And it, and their conclusion is super interesting and I highly recommend people go and check that out. Uh, but I'd say that well, what you said earlier in this episode is definitely true, is we need to stop calling it, you know, the yeah, climate change and start calling it the climate crisis because it is actually what it is.